everyone. Once again, and I don't say this out of rote. I say it because I really mean it. Thank you so much for being here. You know, every Sunday morning in this setting, and this is, is not the only setting, but in this setting, the Holy Spirit gives us the opportunity of feeding us with the bread of life. That word that has first caused us to understand our condition of lostness has revealed the remedy for that lostness and the death and resurrection of God's Son in Christ and now matures us and continues to train us and build us up, provides for us, leads us, protects us. And so thank you for being here to be a part of that. This is one of the primary ways we grow in Christ, is being together around the Word of God. So I just always want to thank you for that and encourage you to continue, encourage you to continue to evangelize the church. You know, we're very good in evangelizing those people who are not at Lakeview or who are in the world. Let us also be good in evangelizing the rest of the congregation at Lakeview Christian Center to be attending the opportunity of grace in this Bible study or any other Bible study that we may have. So thank you a lot. This morning, we're continuing in Colossians chapter 1. This morning we'll be talking about verses 18 to 20 as we will be concluding this prayer of Paul that you remember that began in verse 9. And actually before then, you remember, he has been remembering their faith, their hope, and their love. These three words which we see Paul mention to this church, mention to the Thessalonians, of course. He mentions it in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. This trilogy that is so significant to determining our health in Christ. And so today we come to the conclusion of this prayer. And really, we come to the place that Paul has been wanting to get to. The whole work of reconciliation, the whole purpose of God, the whole plan of God, the whole passion of God is this, that he would have a people in whom he and with whom he would dwell forever. This is the passion of God. So this morning we get to these verses that explain some of this, and we'll next week go into verses 21 to 23 that give us some of the result of the work of reconciliation. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for the enormity, the enormity and the comprehensiveness of your word. Father, what a privilege. Father, if someone were out there on the street giving away 20 dollar gold pieces, there would be a line down the street and around the corner and for blocks. And yet, Father, we have something that is more precious than silver or gold. We have the enduring, unfading, everlasting word of truth that you give to us, that you set within us, that you develop in us, that lives in us and empowers us and enlivens us all the way until the new heaven and new earth, at which time we will partake of the bread of life and fullness. Thank you for this, in Jesus' name. Amen. We remember in verses 15 to 17, Paul has been talking about the pre-incarnational 
person and work of the Son as the creator of the first creation. Now remember what pre-incarnation means. Everybody know what the word incarnation means. It means to be enfleshed. It means that it is that time when the eternal Son of God takes to himself the humanity of Jesus when Mary is conceived of the Holy Spirit. That incarnation, which begins with the conception of Mary 2,000 and so years ago, that incarnation, which began there, will never come to an end. It began then in time when the timeless one himself took to himself the humanity of Jesus in order to redeem us. And that incarnation, having begun then, will never end. So it is an eternal incarnation, but we'll talk about then the incarnation in two phases. The earthly incarnation, the earthly ministry of Jesus, of the Son of God in the humanity of Jesus. And then the continuing and everlasting incarnation of the Son of God in the risen, exalted humanity of Jesus forever and ever. So let's make sure we think that way because that's the way the Bible gives us the truth of what God has done. So in verses 18 to 20, God, uh, Paul is going to be speaking about the incarnational ministry of the Son as the author of the new creation, the head of the church. So last week we talked about pre-incarnational. He is the creator. He is the first, remember, the protokos, and I never can say that word right. He is the one who has created it all, and now we talk about what has happened, what has he done as he's become, if you would, in flesh. So let's read verses 18 to 20. <clears throat> and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might have the preeminence, or he might be preeminent, depending on your version. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So first of all, he is the head of the church. You know, as we prepare to get into these verses, let's just make sure we understand and remember God's original purpose. If we don't always go back to the original purpose, and as we look at the Bible, as we study the Bible, as we read our Bible, if we don't do so within the context of the foundation of God's original purpose, it won't mean as much. It won't seem as comprehensive as it needs to seem. Because you remember, this is a one-work activity of God. Having begun when God said, let there be light, the work began, and the work is completed in fullness in Revelation 21 and 22, when we're all around the throne of God in the new heaven and the new earth. So it is a continuing one work, an unfolding work, all the way to the end in its fullness. So as we prepare to study these verses, let's remember God's purpose was that man would be his image bearer. Do you remember what verse that is? Where is it where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness? Genesis what? 1, 26. Now, if there's any verse that probably you know better than even John 3, 16, it is this verse. Because John 3.16 does not stand alone. John 3.16 is a product of Genesis 1.26. Okay? 
So the foundational verse is this. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is God's great creative purpose. And everything about our lives, everything about what we should do and what we should not do, where we should go and where we should not go, and who we are and who we shouldn't be, and everything about my life, everything about your life, is contained within the context of the purpose of Genesis 1.26. So every time you're not sure what to do, Remember 126 and ask God to give you a revelation of how your question, your decision, your whatever it is about your life is more manifesting him, being the outworking of him, being the image bearer that he has created us to be. So as we move along, we remember this is God's purpose, that we should in our lives be imaging who God is and how God is. And that should be consistently and compellingly displayed. And that's contained in this word, Emmanuel. Remember? Emmanuel. God with us. Us with God. So when Adam failed, remember, to obey this in Genesis 3, 6, God sent his beloved son as the last Adam. He sent his son to maintain his purpose and to fulfill his purpose. When God created Adam... Did he know that Adam would fall? Yes. God knew it. Was God caught off balance when Adam sinned? No. God knew it. The entire plan, the entire plan, from the beginning all the way for however eternity, all that away, was always and has always been and will always be in the mind and in the heart of God according to the decree of God. So this is not something that happened and, oh, God's wringing his hands in some kind of way. He figures it out. However, in order to accomplish his intention, the beloved son would have to be united to our humanity. Remember, a man sinned, and in order for God's purpose to be manifested in man, a man must come without sin to fulfill God's purpose by paying the penalty for man's sin in the new man so that God's purpose may be able to be continued in us because of his forgiveness of us and united us to himself in the humanity of this last Adam. So it was necessary, you see, that the Son of God become incarnate in order to redeem us. Man has sinned. A man must pay the penalty. And only one man is able to pay the penalty. The man in whom the Son of God dwells is the only one who is capable, because of who he is, because of his uh, divinity, because of his sinlessness, etc., and because of his obedience, he's the only one who can pay the penalty, which is what he does. Therefore, the Son of God took to himself uh, the humanity of Jesus in order to pay the full penalty for our sin so that in his resurrection we could become the children of God. Remember, adoption as sons in Ephesians 1.5. Why sonship? Why is sonship so important? Because it is in sonship that God creates us to be according to his image. Listen to this verse in Genesis 5, chapter 3. It's talking about Adam and Eve. Remember, after the fall, they've been kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and now they're living in the world. And it says this, And Adam fathered a son, remember Seth, his son, fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. Where do you see that terminology, Scott? In verse 126. 
you see that same terminology. So sonship in the Bible, biblical sonship, is God's means of bringing us into a relationship with him, that he becomes our father as we are connected into his son, Jesus Christ, who is our brother, remember? He's the older brother. And so in doing that, we become sons of God. And in becoming sons of God, we become the bearers of his likeness and of his image. And so that's why that sonship. So this is the background or the backdrop of Romans, I'm sorry, of Colossians 1, 18 to 20. So let's go. That was all free. It's all preparatory. It has nothing to do with the time clock. So now we begin the class. So let's try to go through this and, and uh, uh, see what we have. He is the head of the body, verse 18, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or everything he might have the preeminence. He is the head of the body, the church. The word head here means the one who has authored the originator, the one who has authority over the church, his new creation. Now, that should seem normal and obvious to us. In his death and in his resurrection, Jesus becomes the head of the body, his church. The son did not become the head of the body, the church, automatically. This was not something that just happened. This is not something that happened because the son is the divine son of God. This is not something that happened because only he is divine. This has happened because he was united to the humanity of Jesus. The son had to earn the right to inherit the church through his obedience. You understand that? When he united himself and united to himself the humanity of Jesus, the son had to earn the right of inheritance. Remember, he is the only man who has ever had to earn the right. He had to earn it by his obedience. We cannot earn it. We are given that by grace. We are given, given that which he has earned in his obedience. We are given it by grace. And we receive it by grace, never being able to earn it. But he is the only man who has earned the right of inheritance. Remember in Psalm 7 and 8. I'm sorry, Psalm verse 2. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Now what does that remind you of? Remember Jesus was baptized in Matthew Chapter 3 in Luke chapter 3, he goes under the water. He comes up out of the water. The dove descends on him. The heavens open, and the voice says what? You are my beloved son. So this is what that's talking about. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So this is a promise that God the Father makes to God the Son before the Incarnation. He makes a promise here that if you will obey my voice, you will inherit, and I will give to you what you want. And remember, Jesus' purpose for coming here to redeem us was that the church would become the family of God. Remember, zeal for thy house, John 2, 17, for thy house, for the people of God, for the purpose of God. By inheriting the church, the son carried out the mandate given to Adam. 
Remember in Genesis 1.28, God gave Adam the mandate. Adam was, through his obedience, to be carrying out the mandate of God. Be fruitful and multiply. Remember that? Fill the earth. Subdue. Have dominion. And so Adam's mandate was, through his obedience, he was to, in his progeny, in his children, have people all around the world completely taking over the world as the Garden of Eden would extend beyond its present borders, wherever that was, into whole, the whole world so that the whole world would become the dwelling of God in his people. Now, Adam failed. And so this is the purpose of the Son of God, to recapture, if you would, that original purpose. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The Son of God became the beginning of the new creation in his resurrection. He became the beginning of the new creation in his resurrection. You remember what we said. He was not automatically the head of the church within a time frame, within the purpose of God, yes. But when did he actually, in a time frame, become the head of the church? In his resurrection. You remember what Jesus said at the end of the 40-day period when he was about to ascend into the heavens and said, y'all wait around for 10 more days? Actually, I don't think he said 10 days, but it wound up being 10 days. What does he say in Matthew 28, 18? All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go. See, now he is the head of the church and he's given instruction out what they should do. That happens as a result of the resurrection. In the death of Jesus, he pays for the sin of the church so that God forgives the sin of the church of his people so that in his resurrection, now having procured the forgiveness of God of the sin of his people, now he becomes the head of this new creation, this new people of God. And as the head of this new people of God, this newly sanctified, saved he sends them out. He gives the order. Go out and evangelize the world. As a result, he was given the full authority of God to send the Holy Spirit into the world for the creation of the church. And when did that begin? When did the church begin to be birthed? On the day of Pentecost, remember? In Acts chapter 2. About 9 o'clock in the morning, the men and women, about 120 of them in the upper room, are sitting around and they're praying and they're reading the word. And all of a sudden, things began to happen. Tongues happened, fire, the sound of rushing wind and so on. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit descended upon that group of people. And they went out into the streets and began to proclaim the gospel. And you remember that great sermon of the Apostle Peter in which thousands of people that day were saved by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the resurrection, the son inherited a new body. Remember the glorified body. He inherited a new body as the very first of the new creation. What does it say he became? He was the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he inherits a new body as a result of the resurrection. As the first of the new creation, so that all who were accounted in him in his death were also counted in him, in his resurrection. So in the heart and the mind of God, where were we when Jesus rose from the dead? Where were we in the heart and mind of God, in the purpose of God? Where were we? Where were we? In him, in his resurrection. When were, where were we when Jesus died? 
in him. You see, my salvation isn't the act of God that on a particular date in April of 1964, God suddenly saved me, Steve, and then stuck me into Christ. That's not what happened. I have always, in the purpose of God and in the intention of God, always been in Christ. Have you? If you're saved, you have been. The day I was saved was merely the day, James, that I came to realize that it, made, that it became a reality in me, that it was made good in me in a time frame. And so we were in him when he died. What is one of the proof texts of that? Galatians 2 what? 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Now when Paul says that, he didn't get crucified with Christ. What does he mean? Spiritually. According to the intention of God according to the predetermined plan of God, according to the decree of God, Paul was always in God's heart to be his man, his apostle to the Gentiles. And when Jesus died, Paul's sin was paid for. Why? Because he was in Christ. When Jesus died, our sins were paid for because we were in Christ. You see, our sins weren't paid for because we asked them to be paid for. Our sins weren't paid for because we repented. Our sins were paid for because Jesus' blood cleansed us and we were in him being cleansed of our sin in the heart and mind of God. Faith and repentance were our activity being empowered by the Holy Spirit that allowed us and caused us to be receptive or be receiving of this work. Do we see that? And so when I call upon the name of the Lord, I am not making God or causing God or moving God to forgive me. I am merely receiving what God has already ordained before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, that I should have in Christ. Listen to these words in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, 3 to 5. Paul's talking about, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, baptized meaning placed into Christ, this has nothing to do specifically with water, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, baptizing or placing us into Christ, you know, in the heart and mind of God. We were baptized into his death. We were baptized into his death, Romans 6, 3. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. You see, as to our relationship to sin and Satan's dominion and animosity to God and undoneness and death and condemnation, we were buried our old humanity was crucified and buried as to its sin. Amen? That's what God did. In order, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So what is therefore, what does 2 Corinthians 5.17 say? Because we were in Christ in his death, we're forgiven. We were buried. And because we were 
in him in his death and in his burial. Therefore, when God raised Christ up, he therefore raised us up with him. Amen. The resurrection shows it is the proof that God has reconciled us to himself through the death of Jesus, that the death of Jesus did the work that God proposed it would do. And we are the living proof that Jesus did accomplish the will of God. Therefore, we are alive forever in Christ. So what does 2 Corinthians 5.17 say? If any person, any man be what? In Christ. It doesn't say if you're good enough. It doesn't say if you try. It doesn't say anything about us as to our work or our intrinsic standing. It says everything about us as to our position, that position being the result of God's eternal purpose. How did we get into Christ before we were born? How do you get yourself into Christ before you're born? What work do you do? I mean, Francis, what do you have to do to get into Christ before you're born? You see, it can't work. It doesn't work. It cannot occur. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, what? He is a new creature, new creation. What happened to the old, the old humanity of sin and corruption? What happened? Therefore, the old is what? Passed away. Behold, all things have become new. New what? In relation to God, in relation to fellowship, in relation to <clears throat> us being united, having been united into the work and purpose of God. That he might be, sorry, in everything he might have the preeminence. That's the next part of the verse. In the resurrection, the Son of God, in the exalted humanity of Jesus... In the resurrection, the Son of God. Now look, the Son of God in himself is everything. But God wants to unite us to himself and to show that in order to be in his likeness and after his image, that everythingness must be in us and we must be connected to him. And so he exalts Jesus. Remember in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8, I'm sorry, 9 through 11. So in the resurrection, the Son of God, in the exalted, the risen, exalted humanity of Jesus, became the Lord over the new creation so that he gained the preeminence over all and in all as a man. As a man. As the Son of God taking to himself for all eternity the humanity of this risen man, Jesus Christ. He has the preeminence. Romans 1.3, God's Son was de descended from David according to the flesh. He has been declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection <clears throat> from the dead. He has the preeminence. What does preeminence mean? That he had the first place in everything. Now, how many of us are wanting to give Jesus a first place? In everything. Amen. Yes. But you see, preeminence doesn't mean the first place only. Because what happens in our lives is we're perfectly okay to give Jesus the first place. Is that right? 
But what about the second place? What about the place for things for me? For things that I want to do and where I want to go and what I like? As long as I make Jesus first, then you see, he gives me freedom to make a whole lot of other things second. Is that what preeminence means? No. It means he has the first place in that. And there is no other place. Uh, well, <laughs> wait, come on, man. Come on. I enjoy doing this and that and the other thing, you know, and I, I, I don't know. I, I really never asked the Holy Spirit if this is okay. I mean, I, I, just, I just assumed it was. I go here every year. I mean, I just assumed it was okay. I mean, everybody else does. I mean, I, I just didn't ask. He has a preeminence. You see, Christ died and rose again and has incorporated and has done that for us so that he might have first place in everything in my life and in your life. That means that there is not an area. There is not a thought. There is not a desire. There is not an attitude. There is not an action. There ain't nothing that is not to have first place. There is no second place. It's either first or idolatry. It's either first or idolatry. Because you see, anything that begins even so casually or so minusculely to compete with God becomes an idol. The only distinction is how big is the idol going to get? It is an idol. It is an idol. So what does preeminence mean? Because you see the way we, we don't, how many of us really live this way? I, can, I can't raise my hand on that one. But how many of us is God hopefully maturing us to live this way? And one of the reasons we know we're not living this way is because there's so much of our life that we simply don't pray about. Don't ask God about. How many things do we do by rote? By just doing them? How many places do we go? How many you know, whatever it is, we just do it, and we don't ever involve God in it. It's a lot, isn't it? Is it a lot? Is that giving Christ the place that he deserves? Does that give him? No. Preeminence means not only first place, or I give him first, and now I got all this second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. I'm free. To, I'm free. I'm free to do whatever. No. You're only free to make him first, and nothing else second. It's a good verse. It's something that we might want to continue to remember day by day. I have to, this is a struggle, I'll tell you. For me it is, at least. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is, let me, uh, it's going to be, a, I think, the NIV translation. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. The word God isn't in that verse, and so it's a construction that is understanding that is God. So let me just say it this way. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in this exalted, risen man. This is, you see, the grand purpose of the incarnation. In the resurrection, in the resurrection, in the resurrection, God has fully completed his purpose that his image bearer shall be upon the earth. Now there is a man who is absolutely in the image and after the likeness of God. Finally, in the resurrection, when Jesus steps forth that morning and puts his foot on the ground, 
God's purpose of Genesis 1.26 is fulfilled. Now the rest of the story is the gathering of those in Christ so that we also may share and be partakers with him to be according to the image of God and his likeness. Do you see that? But God in Christ has fulfilled his purpose. Aren't you glad God didn't say Jesus alone and everybody else goes to hell? You see, oh, he could have. He could have done it justly because he fulfilled his purpose. He fulfilled his purpose. I have a man. I have humanity on the earth in this one man that fully fulfills my purpose. And so when you realize that, you realize, oh, my word, God could have stopped with the resurrection of Jesus, Bob, taking Jesus back up to heaven, and he has fulfilled his purpose of 126. But you see, God is good. He had a larger purpose that Jesus would not only be the first to rise and his would be the only unique resurrection, but he wouldn't be alone in the resurrection, that we would be in him. Amen? Isn't he great? So, that in the resurrection, God's purpose is fulfilled in the risen humanity of Jesus. God and man would dwell forever in communion. In Jesus, God and man dwell forever. God the Father has placed all his fullness with great pleasure into the humanity of this exalted man. All of his fullness into the humanity of this exalted man. This is what the Lord promised, remember, in Isaiah 7, 14, and it's fulfilled in Matthew 1, 23. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Jesus is himself called Emmanuel. Why? Because all the fullness of God now dwells in this exalted man. And Emmanuel is fulfilled in the resurrection. But it's not isolated or just restricted to the resurrection of one man. It will be proliferated in the resurrection of all of God's people. So all of us will be Emmanuel recipients, people. All of us will be those who are presently and in fullness when Christ returns experiencing and enjoying the communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul's terminology in this verse draws upon the Old Testament figures, remember, of the tabernacle and in the temple where God was pleased to dwell with his people. You remember in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 7, those are two companion descriptions of the same event. The temple is built. Remember, the temple is built. Solomon builds the temple. And what happens when Solomon builds the temple? Oh, there's so much to talk about Solomon. When Solomon builds the temple and is completed, what happens? The Shekinah. What is that? The presence of God in visible form. The Shekinah falls upon the temple and invades the temple and fills the temple so that no one can do the performances of duty. Do you remember that? And the house shook and the fire. What happened on the day of Pentecost is prefigured in the temple being filled in Solomon's dedication 
and that is fulfilled. It's a figure in Solomon's dedication, and it's a fulfillment in us being saved. It's fulfilled on the day of Pentecost and continues to be filled every time a new person is brought into the kingdom of God by the Holy Spirit. Every time a new person is brought into the kingdom of God by the Holy Spirit, it is a continuing fulfillment of that great work of God. I have a people in whom I am well pleased to dwell. See, this is what God is doing. This is what God has done. This is what God will continue to do. Now the exalted in the exalted humanity of this risen man of Jesus God is pleased to locate all of his fullness so that in those who are in Christ, we also will be partakers of his fullness. So do you remember what 1 Peter 1.4 says? What does 1 Peter 1.4 say? For by God's divine power, he has made us to become what? Partakers of the divine nature. 1 Peter 1.4. According to God's divine purpose and power, he has caused us to become partakers of the divine nature. So that that fullness that dwells in the exalted humanity of this risen man is now being shared with us, his people. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. At the cross, the Son of God in the humanity of Jesus has taken upon himself the sin that stood as the only barrier between God and his people, destroying the power of death over his people. And so in Jesus' death, he took the only barrier that stood between God and his people. Remember, your sin has caused a barrier between us, he says. And in the death of Jesus, that barrier is removed. Remember what Hebrews 2.14 says, that he might destroy what? That he might destroy what? Hebrews 2.14. What does it say? He might destroy that weapon of Satan, that work of death. And so in Jesus' death, and one man put it this way years ago, and I've never forgotten it. Jesus' death was death's death. Isn't that good? Now, he may have gotten it from someone else. I don't know. But Jesus' death was death's death. So through him to reconcile to himself all things. How does he do it? At the cross. As a result, God and man are reconciled in Christ. The two that were alienated become one. Everything that stood between the two becoming one and being united is removed. Every barrier, all the barrier is removed. Aren't you glad that we don't have to do anything and work anything and try anything and go anywhere in order to work on diminishing this barrier. The barrier has been completely and forever torn down. You see that in Ephesians chapter 2 when Paul talked about the barrier, the dividing wall in verses uh, what is it, 11 to 18, I think, somewhere real close to that. So as a result, man and God are reconciled in Christ. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 5, 19 says again. We've heard this before. For God was in Christ reconciling the sin, the world unto himself. How? By not counting their trespasses against them. <clears throat> so what has happened? He made blood, I'm sorry, made peace by the blood of his cross. How has he reconciled us? How has this been done? 
The blood of the cross, God's means of declaring peace over enmity between him and his people. It was only through the shedding of the blood that the enmity or that the dividing wall or the things that kept us separated from God could be overcome only through the blood of Christ. Again, another indication why there's nothing on our part that we can do to affect our salvation. All we can do is to be aware by the Holy Spirit that our condemnation is just, to be aware by the Holy Spirit and made desiring by the Holy Spirit to want not to be condemned, to see that Jesus has paid the price, and to call upon him to be forgiven. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, engendering my heart to him, eliminating or overcoming that heart of stone and removing it and putting in me and in you a heart of flesh so that we will receive this work of God. You see, God guarantees that those whom he will save will be saved. So you don't ever have to worry about, well, suppose God wants to save my aunt. If God wants to save her, is she going to be saved? Yes, she is. You say, well, that's determinism. It's the decree of God. It's what God has decreed. And I tell you, for one, I am glad because had it been left up to me, I would never have chosen the Lord. We would still be in our sins if it were left up to us. Aren't you glad that it wasn't left up to us? That God made this decree. So you see, on the cross, the Son of God and the humanity of Christ consumed all the effects of sin so that we would experience all the effects of God's peace. He consumed all the effects of sin, the condemnation, so that we would experience all the effects of his peace. Therefore, God is pleased that all of his fullness should dwell in us. The enmity and the corruption of the old creation had to first die so that the new creation could come forth. When will we see all this in fullness? We're going to see it when Jesus returns. We see it partially today, but when he returns... What God has done will be ours experientially without limit. It is ours now, but not experientially without limit. When Jesus returns, that's when we get the rest of the revelation. We see it and we experience what God has given us. You see, he's given us fully, but we don't have it fully in our experience. And these bodies, until we are given glorified bodies after the, after the similitude of the body of Christ, then in that glorified body, then we will begin to experience and enjoy the fullness of what Jesus presently enjoys, and we will enjoy it forever. You see, this is how the reconciliation through his blood and when the appearing of the Lord Jesus, that God's intention in creation will be consummated in the new heaven and the new earth. Isn't this an amazing passage? These verses that God has given us. Next week we'll talk about the effect of this reconciliation in the church, verses 21 to 23. So if you look at those, look at the effect, and we'll come back next week and continue this. Thank you a lot.